0: for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. All right, the 11 a.m. sounds kind of ready. You guys ready to go? Part two of our series? All right, I like it. Um, If you're brand new with this, I'm so glad you're here. We're in a series we just started last week um, that could seem irrelevant to you, but I, I think this is one of the series that are really relevant to you because what we've experienced is all over the map in here. And what I'm going to talk about holds a lot of emotion, and maybe it's why you walked away or you didn't give the Jesus thing a shot for a while. And so uh, if you don't give anything else, my hope is that through today's message you track throughout this series, it's going to give you a kind of a different understanding of what Jesus intended the church to be, which is what this series is about. So the big idea is the church was a big deal and a big idea, but it comes with really big emotions. I mean, some of those emotions, to be honest, for some of you are trauma hypocrite that you bumped into a divorce app with your parents and you were kicked out, really legitimate questions. And it was like, well, just believe the Bible. And that was it. Um, It was, you know, just being around maybe a brand of Christianity that seemed more political than it did about Jesus. Um, And on and on you could go from the experiences that we have, maybe the hurt that you've carried. I mean, I tried to be really honest last week. I'm a pastor. I love the church. Like God's doing his thing all, all over the world, but we're lying if we would say specifically in the West, um, there's, not a lot of ex, there's a lot of expressions of the church where you're like, I love to follow Jesus, but I don't wanna be associated with that. Like that's just a reality. And so justifiably so, some of you have walked away from it. It just seems irrelevant to you. So my goal is throughout this series is that maybe we'd rethink and maybe redefine what Jesus actually intended for this to be and not what we've experienced. Because my hunch is what you've experienced or what you think of or feel when you hear the word church is very different than what first century followers of Jesus thought and felt and what they experienced when this movement was launched. So we'll come back to that in a second. But to set up where I'm going today, there are probably two people that you know about historically that were crucified by Rome, and it's the only two that you know about. One is Jesus, obviously. The second is Spartacus. And you maybe don't even remember that because of history, you just watched the movie. So you know about Spartacus. But they're really the only two that you could probably point to that were crucified by Rome. And the reason you know about Spartacus is really easy. Roman historians wanted you to know about Spartacus. So in around 70, 71 B.C., he led a slave revolt. And Rome honestly was so freaked out that there would be more of these. They wanted to make an example out of Spartacus. So they crucified him along with a bunch of other people on the road toward Rome. And they wanted to make sure that everybody knew if you rise up against Rome, this is going to be your fate. And so Roman historians painstakingly made sure that everybody knew about Spartacus and what happened to Spartacus and people who were with him, so that kind of thing doesn't happen again. So it's it's really easy. But here's the thing that secular historians have wrestled with for literally hundreds of years and they still try to answer this question is we get Spartacus, but how in the world 2,000 years later do people know about the story of Jesus? Because... Um, overall, Jewish and Roman historians didn't go out of their way to document anything with Jesus' life. I mean, there's exceptions like Josephus, but how in the world do we have four Gospels and then a bunch of other manuscripts, which is actually more than was written about any Roman emperor, which is really interesting. Like, how does a a criminal who was crucified from Judea, how does that survive the first century? And so secular historians over and over again have sought to ask the question, how did this message survive? Because it doesn't make a lot of sense. And like any good secular historian, they're looking for natural causes, which is what you want. Like That's how you do your job well. Like if you go to a doctor, that's what you're looking for. Like the God decreed it or wanted it is not a good answer. If I come in with strep throat, I don't want a doctor looking back at me like, well, God just wanted you to have it. Eh, that wrong answer. I want a diagnosis and I want a treatment. I want a natural cause and effect. So that, that's what they should do. But the answer to the question of how in the world does 2,000 years later, a third of the world connect Jesus to Messiah? How is it that this global church, even with all its dysfunction, has moved all throughout the world in every generation, in every language, across every continent? How does that guy's message and movement survive the first century? We get Spartacus. How in the world do we still know about Jesus? And again, we've said this before, love him or hate him, you can't get away from him. His name dominates the globe, and it has for 2,000 years. How did that happen? And then Luke sits down in Acts, the book of Acts, which we're tracking through in this series, and he writes about how the launch of the local church actually made it out of the first century, and it was because of one singular event. For some of you grew up and you think Christianity is based on the Bible, it's not. You think it's based on other Christians, it's not. That's not how it survived the first century. Luke records that the only reason we know about Jesus is because on Easter weekend, when there were no followers of Jesus and everybody denied Jesus and everybody was terrified because Messiahs and sons of gods don't die. At the end of that weekend, Jesus came back to life and proved that he was a resurrected savior. He predicted his own death and resurrection and then he pulled it off. And in that moment, it ignited a movement. There would be no Bible, you just need to know this, and there would be no Christians without the resurrection of Jesus. If you're a skeptic, that is the question to answer. Did Jesus rise from the dead? And if he did, we say this all the time, game over. You gotta go with the guy that came back to life. Like you, you have to take him seriously. And so Luke records the fact that this is how the church got started. And then Jesus gathers with about 120 people on a hillside. And he says to them, in light of what's just happened, I'm gonna build a movement. I'm gonna build my church and the gates of death and hell are not gonna be able to overcome it. And there's gonna be inquisitions and crusades and crazy Christians and so many things embarrassingly done in my name. But I'm telling you, there's always gonna be a remnant that's faithful to this and this movement is gonna move. And the church exploded and the church started as a movement. And it was a movement that wasn't around a Jewish message It wasn't around a Jewish movement. It was a movement for the world that was multicultural and multiracial and multiethnic and multigenerational. And Jesus predicted that it would touch down over every part of the world in every generation. And then as dynamic and powerful and movement-oriented as the church was, it was around a simple message And it was around an historic event, the resurrection of Jesus, as simple and powerful and dynamic and movement-oriented as that was, eventually it shifted. And over time, what was a movement became a hierarchy. And what was a simple message became unbelievably complicated with a million hoops to jump through. And what was about a gathering or an assembly of people that we talked about last week, all of a sudden became about a sacred place or a sacred location. And whoever controlled the sacred place, in a lot of cases historically, controlled the scriptures. And whoever controlled the scriptures controlled the people. And all of a sudden, this dynamic, powerful movement became hierarchical, became ritualistic, became complicated. In a lot of cases, it became moral and immoral and destructive. And if you look at church history, it led to some of the most tragic and embarrassing moments that you can imagine. Because here is the thing about the local church, is powerful and is movement oriented as it started. This is just something you need to know. I tell our staff this all the time. The gravitational pull of every Christian in every local church is inward. The gravitational pull of something that is so outsider focused and so for the world can easily become insider focused. And some of you have your own stories, right? Like where, where there was a point where you wanted to be a part of this and maybe left for a season because you were treated so badly or because you had a sin that was elevated above every other sin. It was like, everybody's welcome unless you're struggling with that. Or the, hey, everybody can join us, but the message was actually deciphered as when you get your junk together, you can join us. Or you, you struggled through a divorce, you struggled with questions, or you struggled with, with some kind of trauma where you thought, like, if this is what the Jesus message and movement is all about, I don't want anything to do with it. And then you read Acts, and you look at the local church, and it looked nothing like that. And it was the most diverse, powerful, and all inspiring thing that was going in the first century. And they did not come together around common interests. Nobody held the same political views. They weren't united by race. or or nationality, or socioeconomic status, or preference, or liturgy. That's what made the church so powerful. It was this eclectic group of people, and they were all over the place. And there were Samaritans, and Jews, and Greeks, and women, and children, which was unheard of in the first century. And all of them gathered together, and in Acts 2, it says that, that they had favor with all of the people in the community. Meaning, the people on the outside would look at the church and go, how in the world do these people get along? How in the world do these people function together? How are they friends? They would never associate in any other realm of of their life and yet somehow this movement is so diverse and so eclectic and so all over the place and what they believe is weird and the whole idea of a dead man coming back to life is crazy but I hope my daughter marries one of them. I hope I work for one of them. I, I hope that I can hire some of them because I'm telling you there is something powerful and inspiring and all just consuming about these people and about This movement, that's how the church started. That's what Jesus launched. That was Jesus' dream for the local church. And unfortunately, for some of you, that's been very far from what you've experienced from the local church. And here's one of the things I wanna talk about for a few minutes that you start to see show up in Acts 4 that is actually an indicator whether you've strayed or whether we've moved or whether we're off the rails from Jesus' original intention. And it's gonna be easy to dismiss this or act like it's not a big deal, but I'm telling you, this is such a big deal. One of the ways that that you know if a church or Jesus followers have strayed is how they pray. And I'm just telling you, you listen to people long enough. You watch or listen to people pray. You hear what they care about, what they're focused on, where they're moving, what it's all about. And in the first century in Acts 4, Luke sits down to record the first prayer of the first century church as it's just getting started. And I'm telling you, it is so in contrast to the way a lot of times that we pray. In fact, let me just ask you this question real quick. Um, What do you pray about? And I'm going to twist the knife a little bit, but we'll be out of here Approximately 29 minutes. So just go with it for a second. What do you pray about? What do you pray about? I'll tell you what you, yeah, you you pray for your problems. Um, You pray for like your deal, your finances, your health, your education. If I were to sum it all up, this is, I'm not, you know, I don't wanna offend anybody, but we basically pray for ourselves, our family, and two or three random sick people. Generally, right? Am I wrong? Like that's kind of how our prayers look. And and a lot of our prayers, and again, I I probably will offend somebody. A lot of our prayers are absurd. Like 90% of what we pray for, it would just work out anyway. We don't even need God. God, like help me to get a date. God, help my face to clear up. God, help this thing with my car not to be bad. I'm hoping this is just a muffler. To, like help help the market share to increase. God, if you could somehow like uh, allow my retirement to somehow stop flatlining. God, if I could, you know, get this to work out. If the water heater, I'm, I'm praying that that's not broken. Get my kid into this school. Uh, help the coach to be nicer. I mean, all of the things we pray for, give us a safe trip. Help us, protect us, bless us. Where are my car keys, God? help me like all of the stuff we pray for and listen I I don't want to offend you pray all of those things they're great it keeps you looking for God that's amazing but I think every once in a while God's looking back going would you do something that taxes some of my energy would you pray for something that at some level is in line with who you're talking to like you'll probably find your car keys anyway All right, work on your social skills. You'll get a date. That thing is probably gonna work out. With Nobody's gonna like be in awe of, oh, I can't believe God came through and do that. I think every once in a while, God's going, if you really believe that I'm the sovereign creator of the universe, that I walked out of a grave alive, every once in a while, ask me something in line with who you're talking to. Pray a little bit bigger. All that stuff's gonna work out anyway. You're gonna go on with your life and you're not even gonna remember it. Like, like, what do you pray about? If I could just twist the knife a little bit more, for a lot of us, if we were to look at what we prayed about over the last year, we'd be the if all of our prayers were answered, we'd be the only one better off and maybe a couple of people in our family. And I'm telling you, again, it's easy to dismiss this, but I, I've watched this dynamic and you see this in Acts chapter four. Here's where the, the huge danger comes in that often we miss. Over time, self-centered prayers become self-centered Christians. Just mark it down. And all of a sudden they embody everything that you resisted about the church. And it becomes us for and no more and my thing and my preference and why the heck do we sing that song and he wasn't funny enough and I want and I need and the coffee's not that great. And it becomes all about us. And we lose sight of this dynamic powerful, for the world, for the city movement that Jesus launched. And I'm telling you, if you want to know whether we're still in line with this, because any church is susceptible, as outsider focused as our church is, I'm telling you, we're so vulnerable and we can just become another cool version of whatever, but we still ultimately just gravitate toward, it's all about us and that's not the movement that Jesus launched. And so in Acts chapter four, Peter and John are like the leaders of this movement now. Right after Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, he announces that he's gonna launch his church. The thing gets moving. 3,000 people place their faith and trust in Christ on opening day. There's all of this energy in Jerusalem. And suddenly, Peter and John are talking about this message everywhere. And this one incident, they go to the temple. And by the way, there's a huge conflict and balance of power with the temple because the temple is still where they believed kind of God's presence resided, which made it a little bit disconcerting when Jesus shows up to go, nope, I'm introducing a new movement. And no longer are you gonna need sacrifices. I'll be the final sacrifice once and for all. And no longer will you need a temple, you'll be portable temples called to go and rep me and change culture. And no longer are you going to need a priest, because I'm going to be the great high priest and now I'm going to be the intermediary or go between between you and God. Now you can have a personal relationship with the God of the universe. So they're still all about their sacred place, sacred sacrifices, sacred priests, and now you've got this new in their mind Jewish knockoff that's like, no, no, we don't need any of that. Now we serve a resurrected Christ, we have direct access to God, and now we've been called to go and change the world. And so when Peter and John show up at the temple, the religious leaders are not happy about it because there's conflicting views of things. And they show up and there's, maybe you know the story or you know a song about this if you grew up in Sunday school. There's this guy that was born lame, hasn't walked his entire life, and he's begging there every single day. Most likely this guy's been there for years, potentially a couple decades. And Peter and John meets him and the guy is asking for help and asking for money is what he did every day. So Peter and John are like, we don't have anything we can give you. Like, we really don't have a cent to our name, but we can give you something better than money. And Peter and John miraculously heal this guy with the power of Jesus. And the guy gets up and immediately can walk. He can run around. And he starts jumping. I mean, like, that's what you do if you haven't walked your whole life and suddenly you can walk in an instant. Peter and John go into the temple. This guy follows him in. And all of a sudden, as you would expect, there's this huge uproar. Like what in the world's going on? They watch Peter and John come in. They're like, okay, we know them. They're coming to make trouble again. And then they see the guy behind him like doing backflips. They're like, what? This guy couldn't walk yesterday. And now today he can walk. In fact, he couldn't walk a decade ago when we went to high school together. And now he can walk. Like what in the world happened? And so there's all of this buzz. There's all of this energy. And Peter sees this as another perfect opportunity to preach a message. He's got undivided attention of everybody in the temple and they can see that this guy who couldn't walk can now walk and so Peter starts talking again about the resurrection of Jesus and that God's done something and they witnessed it and it's changed everything. And in fact, Luke records that by the end of that day, 5,000 people became Christians. Check this out, approximately 10% of the population of Jerusalem And one day goes, we're in with the resurrected Messiah. We're followers of Jesus. And so there's all of this disruption, all of this energy, all of this confusion and chaos in the city. And so they take Peter and John and immediately throw them in prison because they've got to do something to somehow tone all of this down. And very quickly, the city begins to find out about the fact that Peter and John are arrested. The 120 that were on the hillside when Jesus predicted the church, they're back gathering together. They're waiting to hear news. They find out that Peter and John are in prison, which is a huge deal because they're the leaders of this new movement. And so they're all waiting. They're looking for information and news. Peter and John spend the night in prison. And then the next morning, they bring Peter and John out of prison to stand before the religious leaders. And apparently the guy that couldn't walk the day before is there with them. And so they're basically like, okay, listen, we already arrested you. We put you in prison for the night. We need to figure out what you're all about and you need to stop it so we can all go on with our lives because you can't do this in the temple. And so they give the floor to Peter and he begins to preach again. After just getting out of prison, he still smells like jail and he just starts preaching again. And here's how he concludes his message in Acts chapter four, verse 12. In conclusion, this is the end of his message, salvation is found in no one else, talking about Jesus. And there is no other name. Just real quick, this is the offensive part of Jesus. This is the part that maybe you've resisted. There's a ton of stuff that the church has made resistible that the church should resist, or they've made barriers that the church should let go of. But this is the one thing, if we really follow Jesus, we can't let go of. This is exclusive, it's narrow. It either makes Jesus a lunatic or the son of God. There's no middle ground. There, Peter would say, there is no other name under heaven given to men whereby we can be saved and rescued and have our past rearranged and our eternity changed and our future that is different than what we would ever find on our own. And this is unlike any other religion because this is the first time and there has never been a time since where a human being who we also believe was fully God made himself the means of salvation. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm not asking you to believe my teachings. I'm telling you I'm the center of the teachings. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way to God, and this is so offensive, but if it's offensive to you, you cannot imagine how offensive it was to Jewish people. The only way is through me, Jesus. And then here's this lame guy who was there while Peter is making his case to the religious leaders in verse 13, when they saw the religious leaders, the courage, of Peter and John, which I don't know if you know this, we've talked about it a few weeks before, they had zero courage. The courage of Peter and John, they realized, it's one of my favorite verses. I gotta camp on this for just a second. They were unschooled, ordinary men. And they were astonished, talking about the religious leaders, that they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Basically, how in the world are you guys doing this? How in the world are you able to lead this movement? How in the world is our city being turned upside down? You didn't graduate from junior college. You have no money, no education. How in the world is this happening through you guys? Just just real quick side note, because somebody needs to hear this. This is such a setup for how God would lead his church going forward and how God uses people, which is never how we think. It was unschooled, ordinary individuals. One of the things that I pray over my kids almost every night, there's several things, and one of them, because I want them to constantly hear me say it, is God has a unique will, plan, and destiny for their life. And I want that to guide them. I want a vision cast over them. And so I try to do that in a non-weird way where I just constantly pray, hey, God's got a, a vision and a will and a destiny for your life. But I'll just tell you this, oftentimes God's will, destiny, and vision for your life will be within your capacity but outside of your natural capability. Meaning God is not gonna call you to anything outside of your capacity. Like sometimes we're, we lack self-awareness of like, well, God's called me to this. No, 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 you have no aptitude for that. You are not good at that. You should not launch a Christian coffee shop. You have no business skills. That's not God's will for your life, right? It's always within your capacity, but oftentimes it is beyond your natural capability. And so I just wanna tell some of you this, that when God calls you to something, oftentimes it will be beyond where you're at in the moment. It'll be within your capacity, but he's gonna ask you to step out in faith to do something that seems beyond your natural capability. And when God calls you, when God places that on your heart, there will be a thousand dissenting voices and you've got to figure out a way to lean into the voice of God and what he has next for you. But if God calls you to something, if God reveals his destiny for your life, do not ever let anybody tell you that God can't through you. I don't care what your past is. I don't care what you struggle with. I don't care how poor you are. I don't care how uneducated you are. If God calls you, God will do it. And he begins to set that up right at the beginning that these unschooled ordinary men are the men that's gonna lead the movement forward. And verse 14, since they could see the men had been, or the man who had been healed standing there, I mean, this is his second day standing. And they were there with him. There was nothing that they could say. Like they had no recourse the guys walking what are we going to do so they basically the leaders tell peter hey you 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 can leave you got to shut up and stop talking about the resurrection and stop talking about Jesus and you'll be all right but if you continue with this it's going to go bad and P- peter basically again no courage a few weeks ago look at looks at these religious leaders had just thrown him in prison like sorry can't i got to talk about what i've seen I've got it. This isn't about Jesus' teachings. This is about the fact that we saw Jesus alive and I can't shut up about it. So basically they're like, okay, just leave. And so Peter and John leave. They go back to the 120 some, however many were gathered together and they're waiting to hear news. Peter and John show up and they're relieved because they're okay. And then there they are. The threat is still on their life. There's so much instability. There's so much uncertainty. They don't know what's gonna happen. Peter and John maybe barely escape with their life. And so then they decide, okay, this is, this is what you do. This is the time to pray. And before I get there, I just, I just want to ask you this question. With all of that backdrop, what would you pray for? Like, what would you pray for? We were just in prison. Could have easily lost our life. We watched our leader lose his life already. So much instability, so much threat of persecution. It's so unsafe. Like what in that moment would you pray for? And I know what most of us would pray for. God, keep us safe. God, bless us. God, like consider the threats and like we're not gonna go out anymore. Hey guys, we need to kind of stay at home here. There's too much volatility in the city. We need to shut up about this. Hey Peter, I love the courage, man. I'm all about it. You need to tone down the rhetoric just a tad. Too much resurrection talk, too much Jesus talk. If we can afford it, maybe we can pull our money and get some security detail. If we could run a couple escalades, you guys go in the middle Escalade so they won't know where we're going. But God, we need safety, we need protection, we need to tone it down. Like that's how American Christians pray. Here's how they prayed. And they set up the prayer by just recognizing who God is, what God is doing in the moment. And then later, I'll get there in a second, they get to the, here's what we need from you prayer. And with all of that backdrop, with all of the uncertainty, check out what they prayed. When they heard this, the report of Peter and John, they raised their voices together in prayer. And this is the first prayer, of the first century church as this movement is just getting started. This is the shoulders that we stand on. Sovereign Lord, meaning you are in control of all things. We talked about it last week. You raise up nations and you decide you're done with them. You raise up leaders and kings and presidents and then you put them back down. You control the world. You control creation. You speak to dead people and they're raised from the dead. You are over all things. And we just wanna recognize that. And you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In verse 25, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And then he quotes all of the the Old Testament prophets that predicted what was gonna happen and predicted what God was gonna do. And he says this, this is quoting the Old Testament. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord. And then again, this is an Old Testament prophecy about Jesus and why do they stand against his anointed one? And then as they're praying, they recognize this isn't just about Old Testament prophecy. It's happening. That what God predicted is going on. We're living it out. It is happening in real time as we speak. And so then they connected to what is going on in the moment in verse 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this same city. Like this happened a couple of months later, same city. And God predicted all of it. And none of it's by surprise. All of it he determined beforehand. And then to conspire against your servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. And the verse 28, I love this, check this out. And they did, talking about the religious leaders. They did. This is so important. What your power and your will had decided beforehand, that nothing was out of control. We were staring at a tomb, thinking that it was the worst day in all of history. We had no idea that it was the greatest day in all of humanity. We were looking at a crucifixion having no idea that out of that darkness you were going to work resurrection. We had no idea what you were doing in the moment, but none of it took you by surprise. You decided it ahead of time. And then after declaring nothing was flying out of control, including the crucifixion, they get verse 29 to the this is what we need from you part. Every, and this is not bad. Every prayer is like, there's a part where it's like, okay, God, we love you and protect us and keep it. And then here's what I'm asking you to do. At the threat of their life, with persecution, with uncertainty, with so much lack of safety and not knowing what the next chapter is gonna look like. This is what the first century church prayed about with all of that context in verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats because you know what's happening. You know what's been done to us. You know how unsafe it is and keep us safe, protect us, bless us. Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness, confidence, fearlessness. And a couple guys in the room, and I'd probably be one of those guys, I don't want to interrupt this moment because it's inspiring and it's powerful. Isn't this what got you put in prison? Like, I think you got the boldness thing down. When you keep talking about the resurrection in the same city among the people who crucified Jesus, don't think you need any help with boldness any longer. And yet the first thing they pray when they gather together is not protect me, bless me, keep us safe. But God, would you enable us to even be bolder than we are in this moment? Come on, have you ever prayed that in your life? Is that even in our vocabulary? I mean, come on, when when you're faced with a thing where it's all hitting the fan and God, where are you at and what are you doing and how do I make sense of this? When you're marginalized in the marketplace, when you feel like you've been wronged in a huge way and you really have no recourse when you're in this place and there's just so much uncertainty, there's so much lack of safety and you're not sure about your future and where all of it's gonna go. Have you ever been in that situation where it's, hey God, help this and make this work out and and help everything to be all right and reconcile this and bring judgment on them? And then have you ever gotten to the place at the end of the prayer, oh, by the way, give me boldness. Give me courage. Give me fearlessness in the face of this thing that I don't understand and feels like it's flying out of control. Have we ever prayed that in our life? And this is just a side note, but it's super relevant. I'm not talking about weirdness because sometimes we confuse boldness with weirdness. There's a brand of Christianity that kind of goes down that lane. I was in another place, I'm not gonna talk about uh, a week or so ago, and this dude's in the middle of like this, uh, like courtyard area on top of some bricks, just preaching at the top of his lungs from the Old Testament. Pretty sure it's KJV 1611. Like it's just as loud as he can. There's nobody around there. I don't know who's listening to him. But in that moment, I'm like, I'm a pastor, but I do not want to be associated with this guy. So divert eye attention, move another direction. And like, there's no other, and this offends you, sorry. Like, that's the weirdest thing in the world. Like that's not helping anybody. This is not boldness where you go in and I'm just going to stand for what I believe. And then they got to take your key card and escort you out of the building. That's just weirdness. A lot of what we associate in the West as persecution is not persecution. There's people all around the world who are persecuted. A lot of what we call persecution is not you being persecuted. It's you being an idiot and you deserve what you're getting. This is boldness. And boldness, the way they're talking about it and praying about it, the outflow of it is we're gonna love people who are unlovable. Yeah. We're gonna stare in the face of opposition and we're not gonna be afraid because we serve a resurrected savior. We're gonna be bold with the name of Jesus, not idiots, but people in our city and community who know that this is a message and this is a movement for all people. And literally in their case, if we have to die for that, we'll be willing to die for it. The only reason you're here, for many of you, the only reason that you are a follower of Jesus is because there is a group of people in the first century against all odds when they could have just prayed for safety and protection, prayed for boldness in the face of extraordinary opposition. And then they prayed something even more extreme. Verse 30, stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of of your holy servant, Jesus? Have you ever asked for your version of that? And I get, depending on your background, that can get really weird really fast. And you've seen things hijacked and people manipulated under kind of this idea of, oh, just gather together. You just have enough faith. God's gonna, God's gonna do whatever you want and he's gonna fatten your bank account and make you healthier and wealthier and your kid's gonna be great. Jesus never promised that. There's no guarantees And in fact, here's where it gets weird in kind of 21st century culture. When they saw God do something extraordinary and miraculous, it was never within their gathering. This was always out in the city, in the community. As they gathered for strength and then scattered for light, they watched God do extraordinary things. And it was never about the healing or the miracle or the huge event. It was always a sign that pointed to something bigger and better than them. And the sign was it pointed to Jesus, that Jesus was who he said he was that Jesus was exactly what he promised to be. And so they began to pray, God, do something that is beyond our natural capability so that you would get people's attention in our neighborhoods, our cities, and our communities, and they would see you clearly. Have you ever prayed your version of that in a non-weird way? Hey, God, do something that's beyond finding my car keys. God, do something beyond you know the car repair bill being greater than $400. Do something beyond just the education or you know what I'm doing at work or where I'm hoping my kids get in their rec Like All of those things are great. I'm gonna pray for that, for the Bucks to beat the Saints today. That's a legitimate prayer. Going strong with that. I make zero apologies. But if that's all you're ever praying, can you imagine if followers of Jesus, if our church... This movement added to our prayers, God, give me boldness. Do something bigger than me and beyond me. And I'll tell you what will happen at the end of the day. You will see what you're looking for. And not because you manufactured it because you wanted it to be, but it's just human nature. We see what we are aware of. And a lot of times we are not seeing God do more in our midst and through our lives and through our churches because we're not even praying it or expecting it. And sometimes God will accommodate to the level of our expectations. And then here's how they wrap it up. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God Boldly. And then Luke writes this, and I don't fully understand it, but it is powerful. And if you know history, it changed so much in first century culture. All of the believers were one in heart and one in mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. Because naturally, when you are outsider focused, when you recognize that this is a movement, this is a message, this is something I've been invited into, and it's not about me, this is for the world the natural outflow of that is you become extremely generous. And the church in the first century risked their lives. They nursed people back to health where others were leaving the villages. They took care of babies that were left on these hillsides because they didn't see female babies as valuable. They would go into communities among unbelievably poor people and they would give out of their own poverty. They were extraordinarily generous because this is just the natural outflow of when you recognize that there is something bigger than you, that this is for your community, for the world. I'm telling you, outsider focused churches just tend to be more generous. And you don't have to prod or an inspire. They just recognize that we, when we recognize that this is about what Jesus has done it's bigger than us, we want to love at a different level in our community. We want to be generous at a different level in our community. We want to open the doors wide at a different level in our community because this is a message for everybody. It's multi-ethnic. It's multiracial, It's multicultural, It's multi-generational. God so loved the world. The greatest act of extreme generosity. And now he tells his followers his church go do likewise rep me this is what the church is supposed to look like so as we close here's my one thing and i'm gonna talk practically what this looks like a little bit more next week as we continue in acts but man this is my heart for our church is that we would be a church that prays bigger prayers it is so easy to pray small to dream small to lose sight of what God has called us into. That all we're doing week to week is surviving. God help my kids, God keep us safe. God help me to find, God help us to get in. God help this to improve and this to get better. And all those things are great, keep praying that. But what are you praying that's bigger than you? What are you praying that if you prayed it and God came through, the only person who could get credit is God? What are you praying for that at the end of your life is bigger than a fat 401k and you played golf and somebody gave you a watch and congratulations, your kids graduated with a 4.0, but you didn't do anything and pray anything that's gonna last for eternity. You have been called to the greatest movement in history and you serve a God that brings the dead back to life. Why wouldn't you pray in proportion to that kind of power? Why wouldn't you lean into that? Why wouldn't we believe that God could move through hundreds of people that are just a part of Center Point Church and change our community when you're talking to that kind of sovereign king? Why wouldn't we do that? I just wanna encourage you, pray bigger. One of the ways we know whether our church is straight, and come on, we, we're not immune to this. As outsider-focused as you are, as much as you're reaching people in the community that nobody else is reaching, how we pray is a determining factor on whether we're still on mission. Is it about you, your preferences, what you like? I wasn't a fan of that song. He wasn't funny enough. The coffee's bad. I wish they would whatever, my thing, what I want God to do for us, what I need from God with my family and keeping us safe and blessed. All those are amazing, but come on. Is that all your Christian experience is in terms of following Jesus? Pray something bigger. God, give me boldness. It feels like it's out of your reach, but I'm believing that you could do something if you want to. I don't know how it's gonna end up with them. And it feels like they are so far gone, but God, would you do something to get, get their attention? Would you stretch out your hand? And I don't know what this is gonna look like. And it almost feels a little weird to pray it, but would you do something that would capture the attention of people who are far from you and that they would see Jesus? And I'm gonna pray it. If you answer it, I'm all in. Cause I wanna be a part of a movement like that. And then I just, I have to end like this. One of the things I wanna do is just kind of lift your heads up a little bit in this series and get it off the mundane and the everyday and the, I think just being inoculated to the message and the power that we've been called into. And in Jesus, can we just recognize that you serve a God who has invited you into a personal relationship to talk to him? And there is nothing that is beyond his grasp to change, to reconcile, to heal, to restore that there is nobody, I don't care how far gone you think your adult kid is, there is nobody who is too far gone. There is no city that cannot be rocked with the good news of what Jesus has done. There is nothing and nobody that has the final say over anything in your life other than Jesus. And there are no guarantees but do not count out a God of resurrection. The cancer doesn't have a final say. The mental illness doesn't have a final say. Your busted up relationship doesn't have a final say. Your adult kid who is off the rails doesn't have the final say. The only person that has the final say over anything in your life is a resurrected reigning king named Jesus who walked up out of a grave alive. He is able to do anything. Why don't we pray like it? Why don't we ask like it? So, that's what we're gonna do. If everybody in the house, and if you're online, and this may be weird if you're by yourself in the office right now or at Starbucks, but you're invited. Would everybody just stand with me real quick? And I just wanna end in us reciting this prayer. And here's what I'm well aware of, because I have a lot of non-church friends. Anytime you recite anything in church, depending on your background, it's like, that just feels a little cultic. And um, it, it just sounds weird when you so that's not my purpose here. But I just wanna give you something with handles to go. Would you, would you add this? to your prayers. Would you take God up on this? And I'm not asking you to do anything new. This is what the first century followers of Jesus did when this whole thing was getting launched. Can we just do this together real quick? Maybe as weird as it is. Enable me to speak your word. So here's what I'm going to do. You guys say it with me and I'm going to cue you. I know it's hard, but this is how we're going to do it. All right. And we'll do it a couple times if we have to, but you're above average crowd. So I'm going to count to three. That's how this is going to happen, all right? I'm going to count to three and we're going to do this together. One, two, three. Enable me to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of Jesus. That was amazing. In a second, we're gonna end with this song and we're gonna take communion if you just stay standing for just a second. And I'll tell you why I wanna do this. This is another thing. If you don't have a church background, it's like, oh, I didn't sign up for that. That's not why I came today. I totally get that. But if you're a follower of Jesus, it's a big deal. There's a song we're gonna sing in a second that maybe some of you even grew up with um, called Be Thou My Vision. And some of the language in it sounds very archaic, but the words are so powerful. And some of the words in there are, be my vision, high king of heaven. After victory won, heart of my own heart, whatever befall, Whatever comes, whatever I face, no matter how uncertain it is, still be my vision, ruler of all. One of the things that the first century church had the advantage of is they were so close to the action. They knew what God had done. They were so aware. They understood the weight of serving a savior that had conquered death, hell, and the grave. 2,000 years later, we need to be reminded. And so one of the ways that we were given to, to be reminded of this with the local church is something called communion. And communion is simply symbolic. There's nothing hyper-spiritual about it, but it's a reminder. As you take the juice, it's symbolic of Jesus' blood that was shed on the cross for us. When you eat the way for the bread, it's symbolic of Jesus' body that was broken for us. And it's a reminder that this is what was done and this is what we've been called and invited into. And so wherever you're at, would you just pray with me and our ushers are gonna come and we're gonna end the service in this way. But Jesus, I thank you so much for what you're doing in this moment. And as I prayed last week, I know that this hits in so many different ways. So I pray that you would take your words, the truth of how this movement got started. And I know for some of us, there is so much baggage we're bringing in here with all of this. And so I'm just asking that you would begin to cause us to rethink and rearrange and redefine and in a lot of cases, to let go of what we've been holding on to and maybe for the first time in our life to really see you clearly. God, my heart is that you would give us a vision beyond where we're at for what the church was called and created to be. And I believe it with all my heart. I think we dream too small of dreams and we pray too small of prayers. Change that. Help us to remain a church that is aggressively, unapologetically, outsider-focused. This is a message and a movement for the world. And I pray that people would look in at us and honestly would be confounded. How do these people get along? All the different races, nationalities, political agendas, backgrounds. And the only thing that would unite us that is paralleled with what was launched in the first century was that Jesus is the resurrected Christ, the son of the living God, and that's all we need. Do something powerful through us. And in this moment, as we remember what you've done, I pray that you would use it to stir something inside of us. We pray this in Jesus' incredible name, amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways?